Chapter Thirteen of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Thirteen. Howard Van Burnham. The gentleman who stepped from the carriage and entered Mr. Van Burnham's house at twelve o'clock that night produced so little impression upon me that I went to bed satisfied that no result would follow these efforts at identification. And so I told Mr. Grice when he arrived next morning. But he seemed by no means disconcerted, and merely requested that I would submit to one more trial, to which I gave my consent, and he departed. I could have asked him a string of questions, but his manner did not invite them, and for some reason I was too wary to show an interest in this tragedy, superior to that felt by every right-thinking person connected with it. At ten o'clock I was in my old seat in the courtroom. The same crowd with different faces confronted me, amid which the twelve stolid countenances of the jury looked like old friends. Howard Van Burnham was the witness called, and as he came forward and stood in full view of us all, the interest of the occasion reached its climax. His countenance wore a reckless look that did not serve to prepossess him with the people at whose mercy he stood. But he did not seem to care, and waited for the coroner's questions with an air of ease, which was in direct contrast to the drawn and troubled faces of his father and brother just visible in the background. Coroner Dahl surveyed him a few minutes before speaking, then he quietly asked if he had seen the dead body of the woman who had been found lying under a fallen piece of furniture in his father's house. He replied that he had. Before she was removed from the house or after it? After. Did you recognize it? Was it the body of anyone you know? I do not think so. Has your wife, who was missing yesterday, been heard from yet, Mr. Van Burnham? Not to my knowledge, sir. Had she not, that is your wife, a complexion similar to that of the dead woman just alluded to? She had a fair skin and brown hair, if that is what you mean. But these attributes are common to too many women for me to give them any weight in an attempted identification of this importance. Had they no other similar points of a less general character? Was not your wife of a slight and graceful build, such as is attributed to the subject of this inquiry? My wife was slight, and she was graceful, common attributes also. And your wife had a scar? Yes. On the left ankle? Yes. Which the deceased also has? That I do not know. They say so, but I had no interest in looking. Why, may I ask, did you not think it a remarkable coincidence? The young man frowned. It was the first token of feeling he had given. I was not on the lookout for coincidences, was his cold reply. I had no reason to think this unhappy victim of an unknown man's brutality my wife, and so did not allow myself to be moved by even such a fact as this. You had no reason, repeated the coroner, to think this woman your wife. Had you any reason to think she was not? Yes. Will you give us that reason? I had more than one. First, my wife would never wear the clothes I saw on the girl whose dead body was shown to me. 
Secondly, she would never go into any house alone with a man at the hour testified to by one of your witnesses. Not with any man? I did not mean to include her husband in my remark, of course. But as I did not take her to Gramercy Park, the fact that the deceased woman entered an empty house accompanied by a man is proof enough to me that she was not Louise Van Burnham. When did you part with your wife? On Monday morning at the depot in Haddam. Did you know where she was going? I knew where she said she was going. And where was that, may I ask? To New York to interview my father. But your father was not in New York. He was daily expected here. The steamer on which he had sailed from Southampton was due on Tuesday. Had she an interest in seeing your father? Was there any special reason why she should leave you for doing so? She thought so. She thought he would become reconciled to her entrance into our family, if he should see her suddenly and without prejudiced persons standing by. And did you fear to mar the effect of this meeting if you accompanied her? No, for I doubted if the meeting would ever take place. I had no sympathy with her schemes, and did not wish to give her the sanction of my presence. Was that the reason you let her go to New York alone? Yes. Had you no other? No. Why did you follow her then in less than five hours? Because I was uneasy, because I also wanted to see my father, because I am a man accustomed to carrying out every impulse, and impulse led me that day in the direction of my somewhat headstrong wife. Did you know where your wife intended to spend the night? I did not. She has many friends, or at least I have, in the city, and I concluded she would go to one of them, as she did. When did you arrive in the city, before ten o'clock? Yes, a few minutes before. Did you try to find your wife? No, I went directly to the club. Did you try to find her the next morning? No, I had heard that the steamer had not yet been sighted off Fire Island, so considered the effort unnecessary. Why? What connection is there between this fact and an endeavor on your part to find your wife? A very close one. She had come to New York to throw herself at my father's feet. Now she could only do this at the steamer or in... Why do you not proceed, Mr. Van Burnham? I will. I do not know why I stopped. Or in his own house. In his own house. In the house in Gramercy Park, do you mean? Yes, he has no other. The house in which this dead girl was found? Yes, impatiently. Did you think she might throw herself at his feet there? She said she might. And as she is romantic, foolishly romantic, I thought her fully capable of doing so. And so you did not seek her in the morning? No, sir. How about in the afternoon? This was a close question. We saw that he was affected by it though he tried to carry it off bravely. I did not see her in the afternoon. I was in a restless frame of mind, and did not remain in the city. Ah, indeed, and where did you go? Unless necessary, I prefer not to say. It is necessary. I went to Coney Island. Alone? Yes. Did you see anybody there you know? No. And when did you return? At midnight. When did you reach your rooms? Later. How much later? Two or three hours. And where were you during those hours? 
I was walking the streets. The ease, the quietness with which he made these acknowledgments were remarkable. The jury to a man honored him with a prolonged stare, and the awestruck crowd scarcely breathed during their utterance. At the last sentence a murmur broke out, at which he raised his head and with an air of surprise surveyed the people before him. Though he must have known what their astonishment meant, he neither quailed nor blanched, and while not in reality a handsome man, he certainly looked handsome at this moment. I did not know what to think, so forbore to think anything. Meanwhile, the examination went on. Mr. Van Burnham, I have been told that the locket I see there dangling from your watch-chain contains a lock of your wife's hair. Is it so? I have a lock of her hair in this, yes. Here is a lock clipped from the head of the unknown woman whose identity we seek. Have you any objection to comparing the two? It is not an agreeable task you have set me, was the imperturbable response, but I have no objection to doing what you ask. And calmly lifting the chain, he took off the locket, opened it, and held it out courteously towards the coroner. May I ask you to make the first comparison, he said. The coroner, taking the locket, laid the two locks of brown hair together, and after a moment's contemplation of them both, surveyed the young man seriously and remarked they are of the same shade shall i pass them down to the jury howard bowed you would have thought he was in a drawing-room and in the act of bestowing a favor but his brother franklin showed a very different countenance and as for their father one could not even see his face he so persistently held up his hand before it the jury, wide awake now, passed the locket along with many sly nods and a few whispered words. When it came back to the coroner, he took it and handed it to Mr. Van Burnham, saying, I wish you would observe the similarity for yourself. I can hardly detect any difference between them. Thank you, I am willing to take your word for it, replied the young man, with most astonishing aplomb. And coroner and jury for a moment looked baffled, and even Mr. Grice, of whose face I caught a passing glimpse at this instant, stared at the head of his cane, as if it were of thicker wood than he expected, and had more knotty points on it than even his accustomed hand liked to encounter. Another effort was not out of place, however, and the coroner, summoning up some of the pompous severity he found useful at times, asked the witness if his attention had been drawn to the dead woman's hands. He acknowledged that it had. The physician who made the autopsy urged me to look at them, and I did. They were certainly very like my wife's. Only like? I cannot say that they were my wife's. Do you wish me to perjure myself? A man should know his wife's hands as well as he knows her face. Very likely. And you are ready to swear these were not the hands of your wife? I am ready to swear I did not so consider them. And that is all? That is all. The coroner frowned and cast a glance at the jury. They needed prodding now and then, and this is the way he prodded them. As soon as they gave signs of recognizing the hint he gave them, he turned back and renewed his examination in these words. Mr. Van Burnham, did your brother, at your request, hand you the keys of your father's house on the morning of the day on which this tragedy occurred? He did. Have you those keys now? I have not. 
What have you done with them? Did you return them to your brother? No. I see where your inquiries are tending, and I do not suppose you will believe my simple word. But I lost the keys on the day I received them. That is why... Well, you may continue, Mr. Van Burnham. I have no more to say. My sentence was not worth completing. The murmur which rose about him seemed to show dissatisfaction, but he remained imperturbable, or rather like a man who did not hear. I began to feel the most painful interest in the inquiry, and dreaded, while I anxiously anticipated, his further examination. You lost the keys. May I ask when and where? That I do not know. They were missing when I searched for them. Missing from my pocket, I mean. Ah, and when did you search for them? The next day, after I had heard of, of what had taken place in my father's house. The hesitations were those of a man weighing his reply. They told on the jury, as all such hesitations do, and made the coroner lose an atom of the respect he had hitherto shown this easy-going witness. And you do not know what became of them? No. Or into whose hands they fell? No, but probably into the hands of the wretch. To the astonishment of everybody he was on the verge of vehemence but becoming sensible of it he controlled himself with a suddenness that was almost shocking find the murderer of this poor girl said he with a quiet air that was more thrilling than any display of passion and ask him where he got the keys with which he opened the door of my father's house at midnight was this a challenge or just the natural outburst of an innocent man neither the jury nor the coroner seemed to know the former looking startled, and the latter nonplussed. But Mr. Grice, who had moved now into view, smoothed the head of his cane with quite a loving touch, and did not seem at this moment to feel its inequalities objectionable. "'We will certainly try to follow your advice,' the coroner assured him. "'Meanwhile, we must ask how many rings your wife is in the habit of wearing. Five, two on the left hand and three on the right.' Do you know these rings? I do. Better than you know her hands? As well, sir. Were they on her hands when you parted from her in Haddam? They were. Did she always wear them? Almost always. Indeed, I do not ever remember seeing her take off more than one of them. Which one? The ruby with the diamond setting. Had the dead girl any rings on when you saw her? No, sir. Did you look to see? I think I did in the first shock of the discovery. And you saw none? No, sir. And from this you concluded she was not your wife? From this and other things. Yet you must have seen that the woman was in the habit of wearing rings, even if they were not on her hands at that moment. Why, sir? Why should I know about her habits? Is not that a ring I see now on your little finger? It is my seal ring which I always wear. Will you pull it off? Pull it off? If you please, it is a simple test I am requiring of you, sir. The witness looked astonished, but pulled off the ring at once. Here it is, said he. Thank you, but I do not want it. I merely want you to look at your finger. The witness complied, evidently more nonplussed than disturbed by this command. Do you see any difference between that finger and the one next it? 
"'Yes, there is a mark about my little finger showing where the ring has pressed.' "'Very good. There were such marks on the fingers of the dead girl, who, as you say, had no rings on. I saw them, and perhaps you did yourself.' I did not. I did not look closely enough. They were on the little finger of the right hand, on the marriage finger of the left, and on the forefinger of the same. On which fingers did your wife wear rings? On those same fingers, sir, but I will not accept this fact as proving her identity with the deceased. Most women do wear rings, and on those very fingers. The coroner was nettled, but he was not discouraged. He exchanged looks with Mr. Grice, but nothing further passed between them, and we were left to conjecture what this interchange of glances meant. The witness, who did not seem to be affected either by the character of this examination, or by the conjectures to which it gave rise, preserved his sang-froid, and eyed the coroner as he might any other questioner, with suitable respect, but with no fear, and but little impatience and yet he must have known the horrible suspicion darkening the minds of many people present, and suspected, even if against his will, that this examination, significant as it was, was but the forerunner of another and yet more serious one. "'You are very determined,' remarked the coroner, in beginning again, "'not to accept the very substantial proofs presented you of the identity between the object of this inquiry and your missing wife.' But we are not yet ready to give up this struggle, and so I must ask if you heard the description given by Miss Ferguson of the manner in which your wife was dressed on leaving Haddam. I have. Was it a correct account? Did she wear a black and white plaid silk and a hat trimmed with various colored ribbons and flowers? She did. Do you remember the hat? Were you with her when she bought it? or did you ever have your attention drawn to it in any particular way? I remember the hat. Is this it, Mr. Van Burnham? I was watching Howard, and the start he gave was so pronounced, and the emotion he displayed was in such violent contrast to the self-possession he had maintained up to this point, that I was held spellbound by the shock I received and forbore to look at the object which the coroner had suddenly held up for inspection. But when I did turn my head towards it, I recognized at once the multicolored hat, which Mr. Grice had brought in from the third room of Mr. Van Burnham's house on the evening I was there, and realized almost in the same breath that great as this mystery has hitherto seemed, it was likely to prove yet greater before its proper elucidation was arrived at. Was that found in my father's house? Where, where was that hat found, stammered the witness, so far forgetting himself as to point towards the object in question. It was found by Mr. Grice in a closet off your father's dining room, a short time after the dead girl was carried out. I don't believe it, vociferated the young man, paling with something more than anger and shaking from head to foot. "'Shall I put Mr. Grice on his oath again?' asked the coroner mildly. The young man stared. Evidently these words failed to reach his understanding. "'Is it your wife's hat?' persisted the coroner with very little mercy. "'Do you recognize it for the one in which she left Haddam?' "'Would to God I did not!' burst in vehement distress from the witness, 
who at the next moment broke down altogether and looked about for the support of his brother's arm. Franklin came forward and the two brothers stood for a moment in the face of the whole surging mass of curiosity-mongers before them, arm in arm but with very different expressions on their two proud faces. Howard was the first to speak. If that was found in the parlors of my father's house, he cried, then the woman who was killed there was my wife, and he started away with a wild air towards the door. Where are you going? asked the coroner quietly, while an officer stepped softly before him, and his brother compassionately drew him back by the arm. I am going to take her from that horrible place. She is my wife. Father! You would not wish her to remain in that spot for another moment, would you, while we have a house we call our own? Mr. Van Burnham, the senior, who had shrunk as far from sight as possible through these painful demonstrations, rose up at these words from his agonized son, and making him an encouraging gesture, walked hastily out of the room. Seeing which, the young man became calmer, and though he did not cease to shudder, tried to restrain his first grief, which to those who looked closely at him was evidently very sincere. "'I would not believe it was she,' he cried, in total disregard of the presence he was in. "'I would not believe it, but now—' A certain pitiful gesture finished the sentence, and neither coroner nor jury seemed to know just how to proceed the conduct of the young man being so markedly different from what they had expected. After a short pause, painful enough to all concerned, the coroner, perceiving that very little could be done with the witness under the circumstances, adjourned the sitting till afternoon. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 A Serious Admission I went at once to a restaurant. I ate because it was time to eat, and because any occupation was welcome that would pass away the hours of waiting. I was troubled, and I did not know what to make of myself. I was no friend to the Van Burnhams, I did not like them, and certainly had never approved of any of them but Mr. Franklin, and yet I found myself altogether disturbed over the morning's developments, Howard's emotion having appealed to me in spite of my prejudices. I could not but think ill of him, his conduct not being such as I could honestly commend, but I found myself more ready to listen to the involuntary pleadings of my own heart in his behalf than I had been prior to his testimony and its somewhat startling termination. But they were not through with him yet, and after the longest three hours I had ever passed, we were again convened before the coroner. I saw Howard as soon as anybody did. He came in arm in arm as before with his faithful brother, and sat down in a retired corner behind the coroner, but he was soon called forward. His face, when the light fell on it, was startling to most of us. It was as much changed as if years instead of hours had elapsed since last we saw it. No longer reckless in its expression, nor easy, nor politely patient. It showed in its every lineament that he had not only passed through a hurricane of passion, but that the bitterness, which had been its worst feature, had not passed with the storm, but had settled into the core of his nature, disturbing its equilibrium forever. 
My emotions were not allayed by the sight, but I kept all expression of them out of view. I must be sure of his integrity before giving rein to my sympathies. The jury moved and sat up quite alert when they saw him. I think that if these especial twelve men could have a murder case to investigate every day, they would grow quite wide awake in time. Mr. Van Burnham made no demonstration. Evidently there was not likely to be a repetition of the morning's display of passion. He had been iron in his impassibility at that time. But he was steel now, and steel which had been through the fiercest of fires. The opening question of the coroner showed by what experience these fires had been kindled. Mr. Van Burnham, I have been told that you have visited the morgue in the interim, which has elapsed since I last questioned you. Is that true? It is. Did you, in the opportunity thus afforded, examine the remains of the woman whose death we are investigating, attentively enough to enable you to say now whether they are those of your missing wife? I have. The body is that of Louise Van Burnham. I crave your pardon and that of the jury for my former obstinacy in refusing to recognize it. I thought myself fully justified in the stand I took. I see now that I was not. The coroner made no answer. There was no sympathy between him and this young man. Yet he did not fail in a decent show of respect, perhaps because he did feel some sympathy for the witness's unhappy father and brother. You then acknowledge the victim to have been your wife? I do. It is a point gained, and I compliment the jury upon it. We can now proceed to settle, if possible, the identity of the person who accompanied Mrs. Van Burnham into your father's house. Wait, cried Mr. Van Burnham with a strange air. I acknowledge I was that person. It was coolly, almost fiercely said, but it was an admission that well-nigh created a hubbub. Even the coroner seemed moved, and cast a glance at Mr. Grice, which showed his surprise to be greater than his discretion. You acknowledge, he began, but the witness did not let him finish. I acknowledge that I was the person who accompanied her into that empty house, but I do not acknowledge that I killed her. She was alive and well when I left her, difficult as it is for me to prove it. It was the realization of this difficulty which made me perjure myself this morning. So, murmured the coroner, with another glance at Mr. Grice, you acknowledge that you perjured yourself. Will the room be quiet? The lull came slowly. The contrast between the appearance of this elegant young man and the significant admissions he had just made, admissions which to three-quarters of the persons there meant more, much more than he acknowledged, was certainly such as to provoke interest of the deepest kind. I felt like giving rein to my own feelings, and was not surprised at the patience shown by the coroner. But order was restored at last, and the inquiry proceeded. We are then to consider the testimony given by you this morning as null and void? Yes, so far as it contradicts what I have just stated. Ah, then you will no doubt be willing to give us your evidence again? Certainly, if you will be so kind as to question me. Very well. Where did your wife and yourself first meet after your arrival in New York? In the street near my office. She was coming to see me, but I prevailed upon her to go uptown. What time was this? After ten and before noon. I cannot give the exact hour. 
And where did you go? To a hotel on Broadway. You have already heard of our visit there. You are, then, the Mr. James Pope, whose wife registered in the books of the Hotel D on the 17th of this month? I have said so. And may I ask for what purpose you used this disguise and allowed your wife to sign a wrong name? To satisfy a freak, she considered it the best way of covering up a scheme she had formed, which was to awaken the interest of my father, under the name and appearance of a stranger, and not to inform him who she was, till he had given some evidence of partiality for her. Ah, but for such an end was it necessary for her to assume a strange name before she saw your father, and for you both to conduct yourselves in the mysterious way you did all that day and evening? I do not know. She thought so, and I humored her. I was tired of working against her and was willing she should have her own way for a time. And for this reason you let her fit herself out with clothes, down to her very undergarments? Yes, strange as it may seem, I was just such a fool. I had entered into her scheme, and the means she took to change her personality only amused me. She wished to present herself to my father as a girl obliged to work for her living, and was too shrewd to excite suspicion in the minds of any of the family, by any undue luxury in her apparel. At least that was the excuse she gave me for the precaution she took. Though I think the delight she experienced in anything romantic and unusual had as much to do with it as anything else. She enjoyed the game she was playing and wished to make as much of it as possible. Were her own garments much richer than those she ordered from Altman's? Undoubtedly. Mrs. Van Burnham wore nothing made by American seamstresses. Fine clothes were her weakness. I see, I see. But why such an attempt on your part to keep yourself in the background? Why let your wife write assumed names in the hotel register, for instance, instead of doing it yourself? It was easier for her. I know no other reason. She did not mind putting down the name of Pope. I did. It was an ungracious reflection upon his wife, and he seemed to feel it so, for he almost immediately added, A man will sometimes lend himself to a scheme of which the details are obnoxious. It was so in this case. But she was too interested in her plans to be affected by so small a matter as this. This explained more than one mysterious action on the part of this pair while they were at the Hotel D. The coroner evidently considered it in this light, for he dwelt but little longer on this phase of the case. Passing on to a fact concerning which curiosity has hitherto been roused without receiving any satisfaction. In leaving the hotel, said he, you and your wife were seen carrying certain packages which were missing from your arms when you alighted at Mr. Van Burnham's house. What was in those packages and where did you dispose of them before you entered the second carriage? Howard made no demur in answering. My wife's clothes were in them, said he, and we dropped them somewhere on 27th Street, near 3rd Avenue, just as we saw an old woman coming along the sidewalk. We knew that she would stop and pick them up, and she did, for we slid into a dark shadow made by a projecting stoop and watched her. Is that too simple a method for disposing of certain encumbering bundles to be believed, sir? That is for the jury to decide, answered the coroner stiffly. But why were you so anxious to dispose of these articles? 
were they not worth some money, and would it not have been simpler and much more natural to leave them at the hotel till you chose to send for them? That is, if you were simply engaged in playing, as you say, a game upon your father and not upon the whole community? Yes, Mr. Van Burnham acknowledged, that would have been the natural thing, no doubt, but we were not following natural instincts at the time, but a woman's bizarre caprices. We did, as I said, and laughed long, I assure you, over its unqualified success, for the old woman not only grabbed the packages with avidity, but turned and fled away with them, just as if she had expected this opportunity, and had prepared to make the most of it. It was very laughable, certainly, observed the coroner in a hard voice. You must have found it very ridiculous. After giving the witness a look full of something deeper than sarcasm, he turned towards the jury as if to ask them what they thought of these very forced and suspicious explanations. But they evidently did not know what to think, and the coroner's looks flew back to the witness, who, of all the persons present, seemed the least impressed by the position in which he stood. "'Mr. Van Burnham,' said he, "'you showed a great deal of feeling this morning at being confronted with your wife's hat. Why was this? And why did you wait till you saw this evidence of her presence on the scene of death to acknowledge the facts you have been good enough to give us this afternoon?' If I had a lawyer by my side, you would not ask me that question, or if you did, I would not be allowed to answer it. But I have no lawyer here, and so I will say that I was greatly shocked by the catastrophe which has happened to my wife, and under the stress of my first overpowering emotions, had the impulse to hide the fact that the victim of so dreadful a mischance was my wife. I thought that if no connection was found between myself and this dead woman, I would stand in no danger of the suspicion which must cling to the man who came into the house with her. But like most first impulses, it was a foolish one, and gave way under the strain of investigation. I, however, persisted in it as long as possible, partially because my disposition is an obstinate one, and partially because I hated to acknowledge myself a fool. But when I saw that hat, and recognized it as an indisputable proof of her presence in the Van Burnham house that night, my confidence in the attempt I was making broke down all at once. I could deny her shape, her hands, and even the scar, which she might have had in common with other women, but I could not deny her hat. Too many persons had seen her wear it. But the coroner was not to be so readily imposed upon. I see, I see, he repeated with great dryness, and I hope the jury will be satisfied. And they probably will, unless they remember the anxiety which, according to your story, was displayed by your wife to have her whole outfit in keeping with her appearance as a working girl. If she was so particular as to think it necessary to dress herself in store-made undergarments, why make all these precautions void by carrying into the house a hat with the name of an expensive milliner inside it? Women are inconsistent, sir. She liked the hat and hated to part with it. She thought she could hide it somewhere in the great house. At least that was what she said to me when she tucked it under her cape. The coroner, who evidently did not believe one word of this, stared at the witness as if curiosity was fast taking the place of indignation and I did not wonder. Howard Van Burnham, as thus presented to our notice by his own testimony, was an anomaly, 
whether we were to believe what he was saying at the present time or what he had said during the morning session but i wished i had had the questioning of him his next answer however opened up one dark place into which i had been peering for some time without any enlightenment it was in reply to the following query all this said the coroner is very interesting but what explanation have you to give for taking your wife into your father's empty house at an hour so late and then leaving her to spend the best part of the dark night alone none said he that will strike you as sensible and judicious but we were not sensible that night neither were we judicious or i would not be standing here trying to explain what is not explainable by any of the ordinary rules of conduct she was set upon being the first to greet my father on his entrance into his own home and her first plan had been to do so in her own proper character as my wife but afterwards the freak took her as i have said to personify the housekeeper whom my father had cabled us to have in waiting at his house a cablegram which had reached us too late for any practical use and which we had therefore ignored and fearing he might come early in the morning before she could be on hand to make the favorable impression she intended she wished to be left in the house that night and i humored her i did not foresee the suffering that my departure might cause her or the fears that were likely to spring from her lonely position in so large and empty a dwelling or rather i should say she did not foresee them for she begged me not to stay with her when i hinted at the darkness and dreariness of the place saying that she was too jolly to feel fear or think of anything but the surprise my father and sisters would experience in discovering that their very agreeable young housekeeper was the woman they had so long despised and why persisted the coroner edging forward in his interest and so allowing me to catch a glimpse of mr gryce's face as he too leaned forward in his anxiety to hear every word that fell from this remarkable witness why do you speak of her fear what reason have you to think she suffered apprehension after your departure why echoed the witness as if astounded by the other's lack of perspicacity did she not kill herself in a moment of terror and discouragement leaving her as i did in a condition of health and good spirits can you expect me to attribute her death to any other cause than a sudden attack of frenzy caused by terror ah exclaimed the coroner in a suspicious tone which no doubt voiced the feelings of most people present then you think your wife committed suicide most certainly replied the witness avoiding but two pairs of eyes in the whole crowd those of his father and brother with a hat-pin continued the coroner letting his hitherto scarcely suppressed irony become fully visible in his voice and manner thrust into the back of her neck at a spot young ladies surely would have but little reason to know is particularly fatal suicide when she was found crushed under a pile of bric-a-brac which was thrown down or fell upon her hours after she received the fatal thrust i do not know how else she could have died persisted the witness calmly unless she opened the door to some burglar and what burglar would kill a woman in that way when he could pound her with his fists no she was frenzied and stabbed herself in desperation or the thing was done by accident god knows how 
and as for the testimony of the experts well we all know how easily the wisest of them can be mistaken even in matters of as serious import as these if all the experts in the world here his voice rose and his nostrils dilated till his aspect was actually commanding and impressed us all like a sudden transformation if all the experts in the world were to swear that those shelves were thrown upon her after she had lain there for four hours dead i would not believe them appearances or no appearances blood or no blood i here declare that she pulled that cabinet over in her death struggle and upon the truth of this fact i am ready to rest my honor as a man and my integrity as her husband an uproar immediately followed amid which could be heard cries of he lies he's a fool the attitude taken by the witness was so unexpected that the most callous person present could not fail to be affected by it but curiosity is as potent a passion as surprise and in a few minutes all was still again and everybody intent to hear how the coroner would answer these asseverations i have heard of a blind man denying the existence of light said the gentleman but never before of a sensible being like yourself urging the most untenable theories in face of such evidence as has been brought before us during this inquiry if your wife committed suicide or if the entrance of the point of a hat-pin into her spine was effected by accident how comes the head of the pin to have been found so many feet away from her and in such a place as the parlor register it may have flown there when it broke or what is much more probable been kicked there by some of the many people who passed in and out of the room between the time of her death and that of its discovery but the register was found closed urged the coroner was it not mr gryce that person thus appealed to rose for an instant it was said he and deliberately sat down again the face of the witness which had been singularly free from expression since his last vehement outbreak clouded over for an instant and his eye fell as if he felt himself engaged in an unequal struggle but he recovered his courage speedily and quietly observed the register may have been closed by a passing foot i have known of stranger coincidences than that mr van burnham asked the coroner as if weary of subterfuges and argument have you considered the effect which this highly contradictory evidence of yours is likely to have on your reputation i have and are you ready to accept the consequences if any especial consequences follow i must accept them sir when did you lose the keys which you say you have not now in your possession this morning you asserted that you did not know but perhaps this afternoon you may like to modify that statement i lost them after i left my wife shut up in my father's house soon very soon how soon within an hour i should judge how do you know it was so soon i missed them at once where were you when you missed them i don't know somewhere i was walking the streets as i have said i don't remember just where i was when i thrust my hands in my pocket and found the keys gone you do not no but it was within an hour after leaving the house yes 
Very good. The keys have been found. The witness started, started so violently that his teeth came together with a click loud enough to be heard over the whole room. Have they, he said with an effort at nonchalance, which, however, failed to deceive anyone who noticed his change of color. You can tell me, then, where I lost them. They were found, said the coroner, in their usual place above your brother's desk in Duane Street. Oh, murmured the witness, utterly taken aback or appearing so, I cannot account for their being found in the office. I was so sure I dropped them in the street. I did not think you could account for it, quietly observed the coroner, and without another word he dismissed the witness, who staggered to a seat as remote as possible from the one where he had previously been sitting between his father and brother. End of chapter 14